Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today because we get to talk about a really interesting, thought-provoking book that takes us through a bit of history and very much helps us look into the present and the future. The book is titled The Post-Screen Through Virtual Reality, Holograms and Light Projections, Where Screen Boundaries Lie, published by the University of Amsterdam Press. And it really takes seriously and kind of properly something we overlook a lot, even if literally right now we're using them. Screens, they're everywhere. And yet, what is visible about them? Where are the boundaries? What does that mean? What does it mean that they're so part of our everyday life and way of experiencing the world? There's actually quite a lot of questions here. So I'm very pleased to welcome the author of the book, Dr. Jenna Ung, to the podcast to tell us and help us think through many of these issues. Jenna, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Well, thank you, Miranda, for having me on on this podcast and and having me on this network, which is such a brilliant forum for introducing such uh, new literature, new ideas. So very happy to be here. We're very happy to have you. And in fact, on the theme of introductions, could you start off, please, by introducing yourself a little bit and explain why you decided to write this book? Sure. So I am a professor in digital media and culture at the University of York in the UK. So that's my job title. I work primarily on digital visual culture, and that's the area in which this book emerged on the post screen. I also have research interests in the philosophy of technology, the post-human computational culture, the digital humanities. So really anything in the crosshairs of technology and culture, of how technology, whether it's computational, usually computational technology, how technology mediates its meanings for how we live and our conditions of being, that's where I, I, it really gets my eyes lit up and that's what I, I work on and what I am most excited about. And that also feeds into why I decided to write this book primarily on screen boundaries. So the post-screen with this very long title. Uh, why I decided to write this book was the starting point is relatively straightforward. It is simply because I was seeing increasingly numerous multiple and multifaceted ways in which the visibilities and the perceptibilities of screen boundaries are changing. So the way in which we are seeing screens and the boundaries of screens are increasingly getting diminished and eroded. So previously, screen boundaries are very clear, right? I mean, the cinema, you know, we know where the screen cinema is. We know where the image stands, where it starts, where it ends. Same with TV, same with the stage. The stage is a very well-demarcated space, right? The proscenium, the stage curtains, the stage itself. We know, again, where the virtuality, where the performance is, and where the actual um, physical reality well, the site of the physical reality, and we know where the, where the virtual reality is. So bar a few examples primed for entertainment and spectacle, like 3D cinema, 
we know clearly where is the site of the image, where is the site of the reality. But what I was seeing and what I was noticing from contemporary screen media is the blurring of these boundaries of the image against their surroundings. So to enable the viewer to forget, you know, and I say forget in air quotes, uh, to forget that the screen is there, right? To no longer be able to differentiate where is the image, where is the reality. And to me, this is a very important question. Uh, it is... Um, it is not just a simply a, a, a question of, well, you know, things are just blurring. We, uh, they're just melt, meshing together, melding together. Uh, it is. I felt that this this was a question that spoke more importantly to issues of truth, of illusion, of reality, and that in turn speaks to a wider culture of our politics today of disinformation, and so on. So I was looking at all these examples, um, and they're featured in my book of these um, post-screen, what I call post-screen media, VR, holographic projections, light projections, uh, all these media which deliberately agitate and muddy these boundaries. And to sort of vindicate my idea, uh, I didn't cover these in my book because they came out after the book uh, was published. But also what we have today, the metaverse, Apple Vision Pro, the mixed reality headset from Apple, which is going to be launched soon, I think. Immersive venues, you know, the, the gigantic spaces like the Sphere Dome in Las Vegas, Alternet in London. Um, two years ago, Apple Voyage um, launched, which is the concert of, of the Swedish pop group ABBA as avatars, right, in London. And these are all media which are eroding, diminishing those boundaries of that virtual reality against the the, um, against their surroundings. And these media is what I call um, post-screen media, media which seek to diminish, if not erase, perceptual differentiations between actual reality and virtual reality. And in this sense, screens move from spaces of difference to spaces of indifference. And that absence of distinguishment, I felt, pointed to something more important, um, which I wanted to write about. So that was the reason why. I wanted to write this book. What a fabulous start. Um, so much information there, uh, laying out the kind of question, the stakes of it, all sorts of ways that people have probably interacted with these questions without realizing it, um, mm -hmm. and helping us define some kind of key terms for the book and our discussion, including, of course, post-screen media. But I want to kind of poke at that term a little bit more, because one thing I especially appreciated in the book is quite often we see these terms post something, right? Mm. And sometimes there's definitions of what that is, the thing with post mm. in it, you know, postmodernism, etc. But there isn't mm. always interrogation of kind of what is it post of. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciated that in your book, you very much engage with that question. So can you talk to us a little bit about what is post-screen media post of? Mm. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Miranda. There are many, many posts of all sorts of things. Uh, just on media alone, there's post-cinema, post-internet, post-virtual. Uh, yeah, there, there is a lot. <clears throat> and just as I wrote in my book, uh, the post-media, I think, has to take a number in this very long line. Um, so the conventional sense of post is in the, in the idea of being after or later, right? The sense that there is something's ending and something else is beginning. So post-cinema in that sense is about a kind of cinema that's ended and then something else which takes its place, point, pointing to a different direction and so on. So I don't mean the post-screen here in that sense. So there is no sense of 
chronology or development certainly doesn't mean that the screen has ended and the post screen is some kind of different stage that comes after because screens, as you say in the introduction, are still very much with us. Um, and ironically, when I wrote this, when I was finishing this book uh, during the pandemic, where life sort of descended into screens and Zoom and so on. So um, there, is, there is no sense at all that we are doing away with screens. Um, so that's not what I mean by a post-screen. So what I mean by um, post-screen, the post-off really means two things here. So the first sense is, is a sense of criticality. So thinking, taking really from how we discuss post-humanism, so post-humanism is not, is not, part of it is about what comes after the human, you know, the transhuman and so on. But a large part of post-human discourse is about reorienting relations of humans and their world and thinking about the post as a pointer to this critique of that subject in this larger politics. And that kind of criticality was what I wanted to look at in post in the post of the post screen, revising the thinking of the screen-based relations in that wider politic, in that wider expression of entanglement and entwinement. So to, to color a, another imagination of reality um, across these entanglements of, of screen boundaries. So the first is to take the post as a kind of critical direct, a direction of criticality. And then the second is the corollary, which is that um, in this revised thinking, the post-screen reaches for a critical space that is beyond the object. So not after it, not some kind of chronology, but a new or a different uh, kind of critical space. So looking past, specifically looking past the screen to its point where it doesn't exist anymore because it has no boundaries, right? So we're looking about this reality where we cannot see where it begins, where it ends. But in that lack of differentiation, it becomes a moral message. I think I mentioned that in my, in my um, earlier. A world without difference, without the boundaries that state distinguishment is one that is problematic profoundly, right? It cannot differentiate, it cannot distinguish, it cannot tell truth from illusion or right from wrong. So again, in this sense, this is the other sense of how the post-screen moves from space of difference to space of indifference. It is through this sense of this void beyond the, the screen, this indifference uh, of this sort of this tabula rasa the, and, and the peril of a space that is of this void of difference. So those are the two ways in which I would I I thought about the post um, in this sense. And see, audience listeners, this is why I ask because there's a lot of interesting things packed into that term, and I think that answer raises I mean a number of things, but one of them is kind of the the perils, the the concerns, the strangeness, I suppose, of having this indistinguishment, having this um, mm. movement and transformation which in a lot of ways I think puts boundaries into much more focus than we usually have if we're thinking about what it means to kind of cross them. So can you walk us through some of the, what you call intense work is that boundaries mm. do? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Because there are weird things, aren't they? They're kind of these in-between spaces, right? A boundary, it, it it's only there because of what it isn't. It isn't the image. It isn't just the wall. 
is the in-between space between the image and the wall. At the same time, it does exist as an in-between space. So it's a complex space, and it does a lot of things. <laughs> it does difficult work, actually. So boundaries, they direct attention, they provide meaning, they include and exclude, right? And they allow and withhold access. So these we can all kind of tell, you know, when we think of um, frames of cinema, for example, or frames of painting, right? The boundary states, here is a painting, there is the wall, right? Here is the image, um, there, there is the, the theater, here is the on-screen, there is the off-screen. So um, Anne Friedberg calls this the ontological cut, right? So in making this cut, they do all these things, they direct attention, they define, they mark where something begins and ends, and I've used this word a number of times now, they differentiate, they differentiate what is reality, what is representation. And in that differentiation, one of the things that are important is that the boundary therefore also hosts tension and violation. So, you know, there are many examples here. I'll just list one. So the breaking of the fourth wall, for example, right? So in cinema, the character in the film is not supposed to really acknowledge the audience or the camera. Um, but occasionally they do do that. And when they do, they turn to a camera and they look at us, the spectator, they acknowledge our presence, right? In breaking of the fourth wall, I mean, the violation of that phrase alone speaks of that, um, the, of the tension, in that boundary, crossing this divider between the audience and the character's world. So boundaries point, uh, they direct, they define pressures and transgressions. And so that is an um, important theory for my understanding of image, images and realities. But one more, uh, at least for my book, boundaries also signify relations which bound back to us as viewers. So they just they do not just differentiate between image and reality. They're also a lens or framework of understanding ourselves, basically, because we look at things and we frame them through the boundaries, right? So um, as screens demarcate between art and life, boundaries also point to fundamental truths about both and the qualities of being human in navigating between art and life. So Rene Magritte uh, um, had this um, created this painting, which I referred a lot in my book, simply because it speaks so much to the significance of boundaries, um, which I used in my book. So the painting is called La Condition Humaine, and there are various versions of of what he drew, of what he painted, but the one that I used in my book is the one where you see a landscape. Uh, you see a landscape through a window, but then there is a painting, so it's a painting within the painting. There's a painting that's propped against the window, which portrays the landscape through the window. So as a near continuous view, and the key word here is near continuous, because the landscape doesn't quite match the view. It kind of looks like the landscape, sorry, the painting doesn't quite match the view. The painting kind of looks like the landscape, but there are very subtle, but deliberate disruptions of the painting's otherwise flawless alignment. Um, you know, there are some faint strokes of the canvas outline. You can see the clip and the stand of the canvas edges, the pin hits that fix the canvas in place. So it's kind of a continuation of the landscape, but not quite. And one way to read this painting is, again, about boundaries, right? Boundaries which announce the defeat in bridging representation and object, the gap 
always shows. The boundary is always there, and there will never be this exact, perfect, seamless placing. But we can also read the painting as about not just about failure, but also about desire. And it is a desire to seal that gap. Why would you have this painting that shows a, that tries to show the landscape out of the window? It's because you know it, it points to a certain idea of mastering artifice and the virtual, so that it becomes our overwhelmingly real reality. Right? There's a broader yearning here at play. So boundaries also take on this weight of pointing to media and the human condition, as Margaret's painting is titled, right? This, this is a human condition of failure, of, of the virtual, but it's also a human condition of always desiring um, that artifice. And these chasms, I think, expose what we really want and how we seek to master our world and fail to master our world and the truths of being human in, those, in, in between uh, those efforts. So given the, sorry, did you want to continue? No, no, that's, that's, I, um, yeah. So, you know, boundaries really just do a lot. And, but it yeah. also points to very, very profound things, right? They point to these mm. uh, profound co- basic contestations, human nature, art and life, uh, representation and reality. So mm. disrupting boundaries also means revisiting those battlefields. Well, exactly. That's exactly what I wanted to ask about, given what you've just beautifully and brilliantly described to us as the many things that boundaries are doing and signifying. What happens when there isn't the near continuous in the image? What happens when the virtual spills over or leaks beyond the screen? Mm. Yeah, many things (laughs) happen. Um, Yeah. And uh, this is also a large part of the of the book's arguments. I mean, it's it's relatively straightforward to sort of point out. Well, you know, boundaries are, ero- are eroding, and look, you know, um, we can see the, the virtual sort of taking over our ideas of understanding reality. But it's always back to that fun- that question, right? So what? So what happens? Um, so, first of all, I would clarify that I define the word virtual here as a representation or an appearance that appears functionally of the same materiality of the represented object, but not formally so. So the not formally so is the important part. So the virtual has a materiality and a reality of its own kind, a second order kind. It's not formally of the same materiality as as the object. So this is not about mimesis. It's not about original and copy. And I think generative AI is probably the most instructive uh, um, example here because there is no original in generative AI, but generative AI does produce its own virtuality. Uh, and yeah, and, and the virtual is also not about the digital, right? There are many analog examples of virtuality like panoramas, trombley, and so on. So that's what I mean by the virtual. So when that representation, the second order representation spills over or ruptures screen boundaries, uh, first of all, there is um, the, the shock of violence and exposure of the tensions and transgressions which are hosted by the boundaries. So I had mentioned um, uh, the, the breaking of the fourth wall earlier. I can talk about one more here. 
uh, which is <laughs> from the 20- I, mean, I like this film, but it's the 2019 uh, Marvel superhero film Spider-Man Far From mm. Home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, why not? This one is a good one, actually. But um, yeah, so it's, you know, it's all about Spidey defeating Mysterio, right? The special effects whiz that was played by Jake Gyllenhaal, mm-hmm. and we have this very classic. He's a superhero in the effects, the villain, the villain. Great. Um, but the battle was never about Spidey and Mysterio. At least that's not how I, how I read it. The real antagonist in this film was simulation itself. So this is about how Spidey had to understand Mysterio's special effects and understand what is real and and what is his special effect, you know, his virtual reality, the virtuality. So only by mastering that discernment between illusion and reality, right, only by identifying screen boundaries and the tensions of simulation and reality does Spider-Man finally triumph. So when the virtual leaks or ruptures the screen, the first thing that happens is exposure of these tensions, right? What is, what is contained in the virtual? What is at stake of the virtual against the actual? What is at stake of difference and its moral implications? So that's the first thing. The second thing that happens when the virtual spills over beyond the screen <clears throat> is something which I... Um, didn't quite thread right through the book, but um, it it uh, it featured uh, quite a bit in the last chapter, and I think it's an important question, and that is a certain gluttony, a gluttonous feeding of the virtual. Um, so it's not the appetite for the unreal that drove the millennial culture of photorealism, you know, as as pumped out by CGI, green screen, Photoshop. So if you think. Jurassic Park, you think of uh, the dinosaurs of Jurassic Park, the, the special effect spectacles of 1990s, 2000s Hollywood movies. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, after the cliches we have today of, you know, no makeup, uh, walk out like this, selfies. <coughs> Excuse me. Which parade nothing other than the lack of enhancement and touch-ups. So we have this culture of photorealism, the image, how do you make something that looks as real as possible? Two, what we have today, this gluttony of a different kind of virtuality, which is more insidious, more complex, a different kind of hunger. So it's not about the photorealism of CGI. It is really about a more insidious play between the real and the unreal. So it's no longer a representation, but a, an off-balance vacillation between extreme naturalism and, un- and unabashed fakery, you know, between realism and manipulations. So think like virtual influencers, virtual models, deep fakes, generative AIs, uh, you know, avatars that have no basis in the physical, right? So it's no longer a question of real or unreal because they don't look like anything in the physical world, but they look very real. So there's a new discomfort that is born out of this vacillation rather than a specific positioning in one or the other. And it is this this discomfort, um, this discomforting reality, which I think is being fed out of the virtual, out of the virtual, which spills over the screen boundaries, um, is a devouring of this sort of hybrid, hybrid mutant reality, as generated through the computational. And in all of that, it also points to a devouring of ourselves, right? Because it's as if we have swallowed all this fakery of images and then spat them out um, as virtually masticated versions of ourselves. So, you know, 
it's this sense of this lack of ground beneath our feet. It's this sense of this void where there is no basis in differentiation um, that I think is partly the culture and the situation that arises um, when you have this explosion or this breach of the virtual. Hmm. I think what's most interesting and perhaps most helpful about that answer is kind of how you given so many examples that are not just in one medium and not just in mm. one bit of technology, right? For even going back to the beginning of the answer, the distinction between the virtual and the digital um, being incredibly helpful. But I do want to ask about kind of a particular bit of technology in this whole conversation, because I mean, I, I think it's probably not too inaccurate to say that some media, some um, forms of technology perhaps see post-screen more than others. Mm. Um, and so one I'd like to really ask you about, because, you know, it's quite often one that people would think of um, hearing this topic for the first time, or maybe mm. even have experience with. To what extent does the post-screen and everything you've been telling us about so far emerge through VR specifically? Yeah, VR is really interesting, right? Because it both is such an explicit facilitation of the post-screen, <clears throat> but also it's a rejection of it in ways that I, I discuss in my book. So facilitates in that it is explicitly designed for the viewer to forget about screen boundaries. That's what VR does, <clears throat> right? It, so it confines the view within the, the device. You have all this headset design, you know, your place is placed over the eyes, there are these like foam cushioning against the face to prevent light from going in. Um, you have um, <clears throat> um, inbuilt speakers, uh, controllers for haptic sensations, stereoscopic lenses for illusion of depth. So there's a lot going on to give you this totality of view to engulf the viewer, fill the, fill the field of vision. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me. So there, and, and you know, and so couples the body with the image by tracking the image, the user's movements. So in all these ways, the screen vanishes. In a rhetorical sense, I mean, of course, it's still there, but the, the body is tricked into no longer perceiving the differentiations um, between what it is, what it is um, experiencing in the virtuality. It feels as if it is placed in the scene, right? And VR blocks out perceptual input from the real world and replaces it with input from the from the virtual world. So in that sense, it is very much post-screen media. At the same time though, it, it also doesn't work very well. You know, the images are usually not very realistic. There's often lag, still, pixel bleed, and so on. So VR yet does not feel like life, right? It probably never will. Although the Apple Vision Pro is making a really good stab at that, um, but VR itself, uh, you know, there are still many things which interrupt and which breach the sense and experience of virtual reality. You know, the headset is very heavy, things like that. So, where does that leave us then in terms of how the post screen emerges through VR? It, again, it's in that vacillation between forgetting the screen boundaries but also remembering and being reminded that there is an actual physical reality. Um, so in that sense, I, I start to think about, well, what can we call this space then that sort of vacillates in between these two um, um, realities? And it's in a way, it's not a replacement space. There's a lot of literature that says, oh, you know, VR replaces your reality. You can, you can start to think and experience what an other body can experience. 
and replace your own reality for a while. And that's actually a very insidious argument. But I don't think of it as replacement, simply because it can't be replaced. You have all these other ways of breaching the post screen of, of VR. So I start to think about this alternative space of the post screen as replacement. So it's re-placement in the sense of placing in a different way or in a different space. So when you replace something, you know, um, a different object takes its place, right? It's, 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 the same, it's the same space, just with a different object. Where something is replaced, it's the same thing, but placed in a different space or, di or different dimension. And so it becomes different as well. So um, I can give you an example of thinking through post-screen VR as replacement. And this example, I mean, there are several in my book, but um, this example that I'll give here is location-based VR. So location-based VR um, sets you up with a VR headset, but as a portable device. So you strap on a, um, a backpack that will track your the movements of your entire body through a fairly large space. So you walk through this space in physical reality that is mirrored as virtual reality in your headset. <clears throat> so if you walk forward, you're actually walking, if you walk forward in a virtual reality, you're actually walking forward. So, and there's integration of the virtual with the actual also uh, via other, sens other sensations such as haptic, right? So if you touch the wall, um, physically, the corresponding sensation would match your digital, your virtual experience of touching the wall. You know, if you step on hot lava, for example, in the virtual reality, you will feel your physical foot sink into something soft. <laughs> so in that sense, you know, these correspondences gesture not towards replacement, really, but replacement, right? In a way, you are still experiencing activating in your virtual in your physical reality you would avoid walking into things for example because there's an actual wall in front of you but it's also a virtual wall as well so the wall exists in both dimensions it is replaced from one to the other so in that sense um movements objects things they gain different meanings in relation to a virtual and, it, and they merge with a different frame of reference. So that, I feel, is a more sensible and interesting way of thinking about VR in relation to replacement rather than replacement um, as, sense, as a part of the post screen. Hmm. So when I opened this book, I, I knew or at least assumed you were going to talk about VR. Now, obviously, I couldn't have assumed like all of the nuance you just gave us um, on opening the book, but I did have a sense that this would be one of the topics covered in the book. My next question is about a section of the book that I really did not expect to find, and I think therefore was even more fascinated by it. So can you tell us about how the post screen might or does already impact our conceptions and interactions with the dead? Mm. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I'm, it's interesting why you were not expecting this, because I would think that, um, that when there's a long history, of course, of media and, um, and mediating the dead, um, but it was particularly poignant for the post screen because where the post screen is about eroding boundaries, right? The most profound boundary we have as well is between the living and the dead. So where that boundary is, is being breached, 
or no longer matters, <clears throat> um, then then you know there are there are very profound questions that arise about what what is the meaning of being alive, what is the meaning of being living, but. Principally, um, that chapter discusses how the dead appear in live performances on stage. So performance is usually, I mean, the framework of performance is that it is conducted in real time. There's a, an implication of aliveness, of presence, of real time in performance. So when you have figures of dead people, dead artists <clears throat> on stage in a performance, there is that sense that this person has come back from the dead. That there is, you know, there is this breach of that boundary of someone who shouldn't be alive but is dancing and singing ostensibly in front of you in a live performance. And obviously, I have to, I have to put "live" in air quotes. So many, many examples now um, of the dead um, in these live performances. Uh, um, Tupac Shakur. The, the rapper with Snoop Dogg at Coachella, that's a very famous one. Also, Whitney Houston, Michael Jackson, Roy Orbison. And I think they're going to do one of Elvis uh, later this year. So, uh, you know, that trajectory continues of having the dead um, uh, 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 appear on stage as this post-screen media. You know, there is no longer any differentiation between someone who isn't alive anymore and appearing in front of you. So accommodating the, the dead and the living with no apparent separation between them, the, the post-screen that becomes this very curious space. It's not quite one or the other because they look alive, but they are dead. So it's, it, reinter, re, it reinterrogates the conceptual placement of the dead and the living. And it's, a, it's, a re, it's an interrogation which also has parallel questions with medical advancements, right? Life support technologies and so on. So ultimately, it is about where and how living and being alive and aliveness um, should be defined. So hmm. difference is important. Differentiation is important. This one is important because it is about not just being dead or being alive, but what is the meaning of us being alive? What is the meaning of, mem of remembering the dead? What is the meaning of honoring the dead? Right, That difference is important. Um, the... French film critic Serge Dany talks about saving representation. So he says, you know, we should not split up the screen. We, we should make a rupture uh, and intern difference. And to intern difference means saving representation. But what does saving representation mean, right? We think about all our most ancient rep representations, cave paintings, you know, tapestry, ruins, tens of thousands of years old. Right? But, and this is because representation has always been to make the most primitive sense of world and life. You know, um, dangers and threats are monsters to be slain, right? And representation as this existential documentation of our presence, it is a pushback against death and decay in the deepness of time that we can't comprehend in our human mortal terms. So representation as this most primordial expression of affirming existence. Here I am, here we are. So to save representation then is to conserve these expressions that are bound up with being and selfhood. It is an affirmation of our realities. So by presenting, projecting the dead in these ways on the post screen, right, confounds the affirmation. 
and we need to think again, why do we need to save representation? You know, what is at stake here? Uh, and, and what is at stake here is what living and being alive really means. Not small things, then. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to think about big things, I think, to make all of, to make this job worthwhile. No, absolutely. Um, I do have one kind of other big thing, I suppose, though, okay, nothing's ever going to be as big about life or death. But um, there's one other sort of big thing I want to ask. But before we get there, I'd love to ask you to take a little methodological detour with me because one of the things that I think is so interesting about reading books um, is that no book is written exactly the same way and yet quite often especially with sort of academic books we often think they are I know certainly um, when I was starting my graduate studies that I kind of was like "Ooh, that's what an academic book's meant to be like I could Mm. ever write something like that and it took a while to realize that actually there's a lot of different things people can do even within the genre of academic intellectual book and you do one of them so I was wondering if I could ask you to tell us a little bit about chapter 4a that you call a remix how is it remix and what does this mean and allow methodologically yeah yeah, it's not going to be a very exciting answer. Um, <laughs> well, <that's here. laughs> I, yeah. Um, so I'll make two points here. The, the first is I think your book should be your book. Um, you know, there, I do see what you mean by there being a certain structure, a certain format, a certain tone, and so on to what a, an academic book should be. But there are, there are leeways and there are little spaces of expansion for you to do what you want uh, with your book. So I guess what I'm saying here is never be afraid uh, to do what you want, um, to to write your book the way you want to write it, to write Mm. your book. And at the end of the day, this is what I think also pushes scholarship. If everybody's doing the same thing, you know, um, we we have space and I think we we need that kind of experimentation. So that would be my my first point. And well, I suppose I I vindicate my point by saying I did precisely that. So I did put in, as you pointed out, Miranda, a rather unconventionally titled chapter as um, chapter 4A. And that was primarily because (laughs) uh, as as I was writing the holographic projections chapter, which is chapter four, a lot, so much of the literature confused holographic projections with holograms. So true holograms are actually made in a um, method of physics, which is extremely different from holographic projections, which is the physics of light, whereas holograms is a physics of recording. So holograms are an image which is, well, very different from holographic projections. And most of the um, uh, representations of the dead on stage and so on, which I talked about just now, were holographic projections. They were not holograms. So how I ended up writing about holograms was because I was trying to figure out what all this literature um, really meant and realized after a lot of research that holograms are very different things from holographic projections. And, liter- and much of the, especially the popular literature was wrong. At the same time, the more I read about what I call true holograms, which is um, images which are recorded in three dimensions uh, with um, interfering wave patterns and so on. 
the more I read about that, um, the more I felt well, actually, holograms do show, present, signify a, a different kind of screen. And it also shows a different kind of ghost, not a ghost uh, of the dead, but a ghost um, of its own sort of apparition. Uh, in in the in and I took this from from Flusser's ideas. Um, so it was a digital apparition in its own way. It is a ghost in its own way. It's a different way of apprehending reality as well. It didn't quite fit the overall argument of the book about the post screen. Uh, at the same time, I liked my argument uh, about the, about the true hologram as a different kind of screen, a different kind of ghost. So I didn't want to let it go. Uh, so I stuck it in there for um, as as a as chapter four A. It's not a chapter in itself because it doesn't really fit very well with the overall argument, but it's a pretty cool idea I thought, mm. um, and it does fit in a way about screens and ghosts. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the remix is the screens and ghosts, and four A was just to sort of indicate well you know here's a little bit of a segue, um, mm-hmm. not out of the ballpark, <laughs> uh, and it's interesting. And I've written it, so I'm going to just stick it in. <laughs> uh, no one's complained about that chapter, so I think it works. Um, yeah, but most of all, you know, the book remains about the things I wanted to say um, writing mm-hmm. this book. So, well, I, I think it's happy. I'm not surprised that no one's complained about it because I think it actually demonstrates some of what we've been sort of implicitly uh, raising so far the idea that the kind of there isn't there are many different aspects to this. There are many different things Mm. to consider and kind of all hold at the same time Mm. that there isn't sort of one truth or one way forward or one impact. Um, And so, and, and also that a lot of this thinking is still very much like, whoa, we're, there's so much we haven't even begun to discuss yet. Right. Mm. Um, Especially with many of these new technologies. So I think it, even if it's not like a direct linear kind of, it's chapter mm. five, right? It yeah. still um, helps illustrate kind of where the conversation is at in a way, if that mm. makes sense. Yes. yes. Yeah. That's a beautiful way of, of looking at chapter 4A. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you for telling us about it because I think it's interesting on a number of levels. But uh, I will promise not to obsess about chapter 4A and in fact, move on um, to the next section of the book, which uh, talks, well, in some ways, building on nicely from holog- um, holographic projections to light projections, mm-hmm. um, but out of the realm of kind of the stage, well, one version of the stage, I suppose. Can you talk to us about light projections in urban areas and how this can be part of post-screen? Yeah. Yeah, this was one of one of my most favorite parts of, of writing this book, actually, because um, I'm, I'm a girl from the city. So uh, the city is full of screens, full of light, and full of virtuality. So that was my starting point. Uh, I had this whole section on how light itself shaped and developed the, the city, uh, you know, the how street lighting changed city life, um, whether it was about protests or whether it was about authority or whether it was for shopping, entertainment, pleasure, so on. <clears throat> so light is very much part of the city. And so thinking about light and the city would also enable thinking about virtuality and virtuality was enable thinking about the post screen. <laughs> so that was the line of thinking. So uh, light projections are part of post screen conceptions uh, really in two ways. Um, 
So I'll, I'll, I'll just talk about two ways here, the two main ways. So the first is this idea of how light itself dissolves the materiality of the environment. So where we have a built environment, you know, a wall or a house or a doorway, by projecting light, that environment transforms uh, into a screen, basically, or into a surface on which there is virtuality, on which there is a virtual reality or an image or a second-order reality and so on. So uh, I, I discussed quite a lot of examples. Um, we can think about the tribute in light installation um, in the space of the World Trade Center uh, as, as a tribute to the... Um, uh, to, to the to the 9/11 uh, attacks we can think about so you know um sorry in the in place of the of the fallen towers we have these uh, two pillars of light that stand uh, in their place right so it is light is immaterial but it stands for the materiality of what we remember of these towers so that's one example um, we can think about Shimonetti's writing on the wall installation so what he did was he mapped images of um, life in in the, in the city, uh, specifically of Holocaust, well, of, of, of Jewish people uh, living in the city and going by writing on the wall, you know, we conclude that, well, th- these are people who um, um, didn't survive the war then. Um, but in that projection, again, the materiality of the environment transforms, right? So it's not just an empty doorway. It is now a doorway that has children, people in it, life um, before it. So in that sense, that transformation of that space renders it a post-screen in, in, its, in its imposition of virtuality over materiality. So um, what I was interested in, in terms of these spaces as the post-screen is how they emerge in these fluctuations of boundaries between the material and immaterial. So it redraws this space with light and then it's energized by you know, history, by descent, by objection, by challenge. So in, it, it is not just it is not just image and reality meshed together. There is a another kind of charge of politics and of history and of culture between the two. And that was what I was interested in in the post-screen in the city, in the sense of the mutable and adaptable space. Mm. I think that's a really um, interesting kind of piece to add to what we've been discussing, especially given how visible that particular example, I suppose, is, you know, you don't have to choose to put on a VR headset in order to encounter this in the world and go, hang on a second. I've listened to Jenna now. I've got loads of things to think about having seen this. Um, So I guess that in many ways brings us to the end of our discussion about this book. But, 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 but I do have one question left, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, The book has been out for a little bit. Mm. uh, And of course, as researchers curious about things, we tend to always have something else that we're inter- mm. looking into. So is there anything about your current work or anything you're looking to work on, um, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to preview or share with our listeners? Oh, I'd love to. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm working on it still. So um, it's still quite inquiet, but mm. I am Give writing... a preview. It's a preview, yeah. It's a, uh, it's, um, so it is a book. 
And I'm moving to AI now, smart, <laughs> not, not jumping on the bandwagon because it is genuinely interesting uh, as to what generative AI can achieve. So it's a book I've tentatively titled New Shadows, Living and Dying in the Age of AI. So it's basically about AI and existential tension. So thinking about how AI, how generative AI particularly purports to do so much that is central to our humanity. You know, it, writing, we have the chat GPT, uh, Furo, drawing, uh, you know, Dolly, Bit Journey, so on and so on. Composing music, creativity, playing chess, you know, right, all the wonderful things that AI does. So resolving that and squaring that with what we philosophically consider to be the essences of our human condition. So I'm trying to square ideas of uh, linearity, speed, and scale of the computational against ish, uh, essences of our human condition, right? Biological ev evolution, culture, history, randomness, right? dying, right? AI cannot die, right? And that which cannot die cannot be alive. So this book is about AI, but it's actually really what it means uh, to be alive. <laughs> so that's what I'm working on. Uh, now there's a ways to go, but um, yeah, we 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 carry on. <laughs> no, we'll we'll get there. Well, that will be yeah. very exciting. Thank you for giving us the sneak peek. Um, and of course, while you are continuing to work on that project, listeners can read the book we've been discussing: the post screen through virtual reality, holograms, and light projections, where screen boundaries lie. Published by the University of Amsterdam Press. Jenna, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. My absolute pleasure. Thank you, Miranda, for having me. 